Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Whatever we have, whatever we are heirs of, it is secure. And even if we mess things up, our inheritance, it is incorruptible and undefiled. It does not fade away and it's reserved for us in heaven. Yeah, if he stores it up there, there's absolutely nothing we can do to mess it up. It's there awaiting us. As Pastor Sam moves into Ruth chapter 3, he gives us a clear insight into what a kinsman redeemer really is. As we begin to understand this, we can see how Boaz's role in Ruth's life is such a clear picture of the role Jesus plays in our lives as he redeems us. Ruth chapter 3, our kinsman redeemer. Chapter 2 concluded with a radical and wonderful turnaround. The seeds that brought about that change actually planted 10 years earlier. And if you're one of those people who's been praying and witnessing and sharing and you haven't really seen the fruit of all of that, hang in there. Hold on. The Lord is faithful. Now, God had used Naomi and it had to be somewhere 10 years back or so. God had used Naomi to show Ruth he is. He is who or what, you might ask. He is the true and living God. And if you're unfamiliar with the book of Ruth, you need to know that Naomi with her husband and her sons had gone to Moab during a time of famine. And the boys had married Moabite women. Mom couldn't have been too happy about that. Nevertheless, she was walking with and trusting in and loving on the Lord. And well, that all got through to Ruth. So, so she grabbed a hold of it. Now we find in the end of chapter two, God using Ruth to remind Naomi that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. It's in Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him, he who comes to God must believe these two things, that he is. That's what Ruth learned from Naomi. There is a true and living God and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what Naomi was learning now. Ten years later, in the time of her despair, in the time of her distress, she's learning, she's being reminded, she's seeing all the fruit of sharing with her daughter-in-law oh so many years ago. Well, he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And, and we saw a radical, again, wonderful, dramatic turnaround as, as Naomi goes from proclaiming her bitterness. In fact, when she comes back and her friends say, Naomi, Naomi, she's like, don't even call me that. Why? The word means pleasant. And she felt anything but. She said, call me Mara, bitter, because that's what she'd become. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we found her at the end of chapter two proclaiming God's goodness, God's faithfulness. And I want to suggest that's what happens when we share God's blessings with the weary, 
with the hurting, with the bitter. Try it. You'll find it works. All you have to do is share what God's doing for you and in you, what he's given to you. It was there in verse 20 of chapter 2. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Now, so far, so good, but it gets better and better. So in chapter 3, verse 1, her, her mother-in-law Naomi says to Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now Boaz, whose young women you were with, is he not our relative? In fact, he's winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Now, we have to pause for just a moment for just a little more background. Up to this point, both Ruth and Naomi have been profiting, benefiting from God's provision through the law of the gleaner. And that law just said, well, when you harvested your fields, you had to make sure that you let some of the harvest fall behind so that the poor of the community, those who found themselves impoverished, could just follow after the harvesters and, and gather grain for themselves. It was his workfare program. It was a chance for anyone and everyone who wanted to eat and who doesn't to just follow someone who was being blessed of the Lord and share in that prosperity. Now, something else is going on and Naomi sees it. She's putting it together. Boaz, he is well beyond his obligations in the law. You see, the law required that he let Ruth glean. But if you've been studying with this, you know he was going far beyond any, well, yeah, let her have whatever falls. He's like, hey, make sure you drop some of the good stuff for her, you know, and, and let her even work up there on the mount, beat it out so she'll have more to take home to her mother-in-law. Well, all of that, I believe, was motivated by love. He was doing far more than the law required. And when I talk to people and they're like, can a Christian or do you think it's OK for a Christian? They almost are always asking, can they do this and get away with it? Or can they do this and still be acceptable? Or can they do this? It's rare for someone to say, is it OK if if I give way more than than they did under the law? Is it OK if I if I love way more than the law requires? Well, of course, that's OK. And that's what he's doing. You see, he's motivated by love for Naomi. He's motivated by love for Ruth. In fact, we can see that everyone who's been around Boaz has benefited from their relationship to him. And so Naomi has this plan. She's a bit of a matchmaker, you see. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the law of the kinsman redeemer, we're going to get to it in a minute. But you need to know, had she been younger, well, she would have probably been trying to make something happen with her and Boaz herself. But she's beyond that age of childbearing and, and she can see, well, there's a little gleam in Boaz's eye when he looks at Ruth. And, and so here's the plan. 
Verse 3 says, wash yourself, anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he's finished eating and drinking. Then it shall be when he lies down, you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. And she said to her, all that you say to me, I will do. Now, you don't want to read anything into this this that would taint the most beautiful Old Testament love story in scripture. Now her instruction, Naomi's instructions to Ruth, they were in keeping with another portion of God's law. This time actually regarding the land. We're going to get to the people in a moment, but the law actually had to do with the land. And if you're unaware, the land of Israel, that Land that, well, there's so much tension over this little teeny strip of land. That land was God's gift to the nation of Israel. But he didn't just give it to the nation. He actually divided it among the tribes and then he divvied it up among the families. All of it, his plan, his purpose, he worked the whole thing out. Now, the land then, his gracious provision to Israel, to the tribes, to the families. And then we see that God actually planned ahead for every problem that might arise. Now, we've touched on this the last couple of studies. God's always planning ahead, looking ahead, making sure it works out. So, so he knows that these guys can mess it up. He's been watching humans since Adam and Eve in the garden. And so, well... If necessary, and sometimes it was, you might have to sell your land or even sell yourself, but only until the day of redemption. This is God's plan, the day of Jubilee. It comes from the book of Leviticus. Let me read it to you. In fact, if you want, turn over there. It's only a few books back. Leviticus 25. We pick up around verse 23. Yeah, it's good to go there. I love the sound of that. Bible pages turning. Leviticus 25, 23 has this to say regarding the land he gives to Israel, to the tribes, to the families. The land shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine and you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land if one of your brethren becomes poor. And here's one of the possible scenarios whereby you might sell your land and has sold some of his possession. And if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. So this is the beginning. The guy was called a kinsman redeemer. So you find yourself in trouble financially. You sell off some of your land, but your cousin or your uncle or your brother or someone related comes and says, hey man, I'll loan you the money or I'll give you the money. And they buy back the land. It's your land. They get it back for you. And he says, if the man has no one, verse 26, to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. 
Make note of this. In the year of Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his possession. Now, here's how this worked. If there were 10 years until the year of Jubilee and your land was worth, well, say $100,000, well, you would probably have to pay just $20,000 in order to get it back. Uh, or, or if you were going to sell it, you would sell it for only 20000 Why? Because, well, the closer you got to Jubilee, the sooner you were going to acquire that property back for yourself. And, and at that point, it was at no cost to you. So the guy realized, I'm leasing the land. I'm never going to own it because it belonged to who? To you, to your family, to your tribe as a part of the nation of Israel. Now, if it were 40 years from Jubilee, well, that would be another story entirely. He's probably going to pay you more like $80,000 for the land. And I'm just using dollars since that's how we trade, although I should be just saying, you know, well, whatever the case might be. Look, at, look ahead, though, at Leviticus 25 for yet another uh, illustration up in verse 39. You're already in the chapter, so look ahead to verse 39. He gives another scenario. If one of your brethren who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. As a hired servant and a sojourner, he shall be with you and he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee. So it could happen to the land. If you were impoverished, you could sell your land. Once your land was gone, if you were impoverished, well, what do you got left? You have yourself. Now, understand, this guy is just really giving himself to another part of the family and saying, hey, hire me, provide for me, I'll work for you, I'll be yours until, until what? The year of Jubilee. Then he says, he shall depart from you, he and his children with him, returning to his own family, he shall return to the possession of his fathers. So you could lose your land, but you couldn't lose it forever. You could end up a servant to someone else, but not forever. Well, back to our passage then. Their inheritance, as you're finding your way back, and if you're new to a study of scripture, it's a good idea to stick your bulletin or something there in the passage we're studying. That's always helpful. But anyway, their inheritance was secure, even if they messed things up along the way. And that's my point. And I want to point out that, well, the very same thing is true for us. Whatever we have, whatever we are heirs of, it is secure. And even if we mess things up, Listen, we, we learned in 1 Peter this last couple of weeks, our inheritance, it is incorruptible and undefiled. It does not fade away and it's reserved for us in heaven. Yeah, if he stores it up there, there's absolutely nothing we can do to mess it up. It's there awaiting us. And then Paul, of course, as he writes to the Ephesians, tells us we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Where? In the heavenlies. So Israel, it's about the land. It's physical. It's tangible. They can see it. They can own it. But, but remember, not only were they only giving it up for a season and then getting it back. God actually says, look, it's really mine anyway. I'm giving it to you, but it's really mine. And that's why it would always come back to them. 
Same thing is true for each and every one of you. When we sin, and we do, we break fellowship with God. And if you're sensitive at all to that break in fellowship, and I pray you are, well, you feel like, man, I'm not connecting. I'm not, you know things aren't right between you and God. And sometimes the enemy will begin to whisper in your ear, yeah, you've blown it. It's over. He's done with you. He's through with you. I mean, one thing to ask forgiveness when you didn't know any better, but now you do know better. You think God's going to forgive you? The answer to that question is yes. God's going to forgive you. Why? Because you belong to him. And if you sell yourself foolishly back into slavery, Hey, it's only until the year of Jubilee, only until the day he takes you home. And by the way, sometimes it's a long road out. It's a very short road back. It takes you to the foot of the cross. You come there, you confess, you turn from your sin and trust in him. He cleanses you, he forgives you, he restores you. And we saw it this last weekend as we considered Peter the same thing will happen for you. Well, verse six, it's one thing to know what you're supposed to do. It's another thing to do it. So she went down, we're told, to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was cheerful and he went down to lie at the end of the heap of grain. And she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. Now it happened at midnight, the man was startled and turned himself and, and there a woman was lying at his feet. And he said, who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing for you are a close relative. Now that last phrase, take your maidservant under your wing for you are a close relative. It is at the heart of this passage the heart of this love story. First of all, Ruth asked Boaz to be her kinsman redeemer. Not only did the law provide for the return of land, and how would it happen? Your near kinsman, your relative would come and buy it back for you, but it made provision for, well, a bride who lost her husband and never produced any children. I'm getting ahead of myself, though. Here's the thing. Since the land was given to the tribes and then to the families within the tribes, God had to make provision so no part of those tribes or part of the family would ever lose their inheritance. And in Deuteronomy 25, here's the law. You don't have to go there this time, but maybe make a mental note or jot it down. If brothers dwell together, one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as a wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Now, the law is straightforward and simple. All it's saying, a man marries a woman, he dies before they produce a child. His brother was obligated to marry her to produce a child, name the child after the deceased, so that 
not just the family name, as in, you know, the last name, but, but even his brother's name would continue in the land of Israel. And I think we made mention last time of the fact that God's thinking generationally. Well, we tend to think this week or this month, or if you're getting older, maybe, you know, the next 10 years even, not many of us have a four-generation plan worked out. Why? We have no clue what's going to happen when we're gone, but God certainly does. So there are all sorts of implications of this. I don't really want to mess with you by getting into a bunch of them, but, but I guess it would be worth saying that you would care more who your brother married under ordinary circumstances like this than what we might today. You'd want to make sure if someone was marrying into the family that, well, it was an important thing because if anything happened to him, you're going to end up married to her. Well, anyway, some family pressure, a dynamic maybe we haven't dealt with to that extreme. But there's a second thing. There are actually three. The second thing, and it's perhaps even more important. First, the law. It's essential. But she uses the same expression of Boaz that he had earlier used of God. I love this. She says, take your maidservant under your wing. It's a, a very poetic way of saying, cover me, cover me, take me and make me your own. Be my kinsman redeemer for you are, she says, a kinsman redeemer. Be my kinsman redeemer. No, this is a recognition then that Boaz would be God's answer to the very prayer he prayed for her. And we've touched on this. As we know, Jesus tells his disciples, pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. Why? The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Very next thing he does is he sends them out in answer to their prayers. Boaz prays that, that God would, would just watch over her, that God would spread his wing over her. In fact, listen to it. Verse 10, and it was back a ways. She fell on her face, bowed to the ground and said, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? This would be in chapter two, by the way. And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you've left your father and mother and the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before, the Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord God of Israel under whose wings you have come for refuge. Now, we're not to imagine that God actually has wings it's poetry, but the picture is beautiful because the idea is she's come and God's going to wrap himself around her, protect her. And now she's saying to him, hey, I want you to do it. I want you to be the fulfillment of your prayer and your promise that God would wrap his wings around me. Well, the third thing and this is yet another essential. In order for him to be her kinsman redeemer, he had to be these three things. He had to be related. He had to be willing to pay the price of her redemption. And then he had to be able to pay the price of her redemption. And that's why we've entitled this our kinsman redeemer, because you need to know this explains why Jesus 
who John tells us always was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. Jesus pre-existed all creation. Anyone who teaches that he is a created being is missing the clear teaching of Scripture. He didn't become. He always was. He was there face to face in perfect fellowship with the Father before anything. All things were made by him and for him. We learn in Colossians. John tells us the same thing. Nothing came into being that didn't come through him. So he had to, in order to redeem us, to be our kinsman redeemer, well, he had to, first of all, become one of us. It wasn't possible for him to redeem us without first becoming one of us. As Christians, we can place our faith in the fact that Jesus not only desires to redeem us, but is capable of doing so. In fact, it's a finished work, one he completed on the cross, and all we must do is rest in that. Join us next time as Ruth waits on Boaz to complete the work of her redemption. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.